Um, it's, it takes so much energy and so much effort to just be you. You have to double or triple that to be something that you're not, right? Hello, Titan family, and welcome to Fram and Friends, a podcast in partnership with Titan Radio. Today, the show truly lives up to its name as we welcome one of Fram's nearest and dearest Titan friends. Here to introduce him is your host and president, Fram Burgi. Well, hey, everyone. It's great to see you uh, vir uh, virtually. I can see you out there, you know. Uh, I looked through those special goggles that they had. What was her name? Hobo Kelly, when we were a kid, that she had those. She could see everybody out in TV land. I can see you. I I'm glad you're listening. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of having uh, Ivan Pitts. You can call him Professor Pitts. You can call him Pastor Pitts. You can call him Ivan don't call him the pits, though. That anything but that. Uh, he is a, a great friend, uh, a, a great member of the Titan community, and I'm very honored and and pleased, and actually just uh, looking forward to having a good conversation with my brother, Ivan. How are you today? I'm doing well, and I'm honored to be here with my friend and my brother, um, President Fram Virgie. And so, thank you for the opportunity to share. Yeah. So, you know, Ivan, I told you before, this is just a conversation. Um, it's a chance for uh, us to uh, to have a conversation and have folks to listen in, to know more about you, uh, to get your perspective on, on anything that we want to talk about and uh, uh, to share your connection to the Titan family. But I want to start where we always should, which is with your story, you know, your, your journey to joining the Titan family. I mean, that means where did you grow up? I know you were uh, you were in the armed services, and we'll talk about that a little bit. I know uh, you were you you uh, went to school back. You went to San Diego State. I know that. I know you're Aztec, but you're still a Titan as well. And then you went back east, and then you also were a pastor for a, a congregation back east. And now here you are back in California, back in Orange County, and a member of the Titan family. So how'd you get your journey home? How'd you get here? So after graduating from San Diego State, that um, that great California institution of a higher education. <laughs> Second best you know, in the CSU. Yeah, absolutely. Second best in the CSU, right? We're just above Stanford and Berkeley and then, you know, the rest of the schools. Absolutely. So, so we, uh, I went to, to graduate school at Clark Atlanta University, which is a historically black college university for grad school. And from there, my wife got a job with IBM in New York. So we ended up in New York, Connecticut for 14 years. There I pastored a church for about 11 years. And an opportunity came to come back here to California at the Second Baptist Church where I am now. But my original career was in higher education. I taught with the City University of New York. I taught uh, with the public uh, college system in Georgia. And I taught with the state public education uh, system in Connecticut at Western Connecticut State University. And I've taught in psychology, sociology, freshman seminar, and then even in schools of theology. So I have a, 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 a wide range of college, university teaching experience. And I met a few people when I came here, they heard about my background. They asked me if I would be interested in doing something in the School of Education uh, at Cal State Fullerton. And I was honored. And I'll tell you, this experience has been phenomenal. It gave me an opportunity to do two things. One is to teach on a doctoral level and a master's level, which I hadn't done before. And secondly, it, had, it gave me an opportunity to be exposed to some of the best and the brightest students that are working in the university and a community college system. And that is um, the honest to goodness truth. Just some remarkable students that I've met. Um, they all should have been at San Diego State, but since they couldn't go, I think Fullerton is a great place to be. <laughs> well, you know, uh, what what you're not saying is also you got your you got your BA in San, at San Diego State. What what would you what would you major in? So I majored in social science with a minor in African American studies. Okay. And then you went out to uh, to Georgia and you got your master's. What'd you get your master's in? So I did a master's in counseling psychology in the School of Education at Clark Atlanta University. And then I went on to Fordham University in New York and received another master's of counseling psychology as well with a pastoral care focus. And then I did my doctoral work at the 
um, in New York Theological Seminary, did a doctorate in leadership and pastoral care and counseling. So I have really three graduate degrees in counseling, um, one on the education side and two on the Christian um, ministry side. Yeah, see that's, um, and then you went off and taught at all these different places and taught all these different things. What that tells me is uh, education, 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 education is something that flows in your veins that you are passionate about. And I know that is from all our discussions and conversations that we've had, yeah. um, that you believe in it and you know what it can do. Did you always know you wanted to go to college? No, I didn't. Um, I, I want to say two things because you, you're absolutely right. Um, one is that I had an opportunity to interact with the Dalai Lama and that was in Connecticut, which was a rare but wonderful opportunity. And he, someone asked him a question. So what is the greatest threat to humankind or to humanity? And he didn't bat an eye. He didn't say gun control. He didn't say nuclear weapons. He didn't say, you know, some pandemic. He said ignorance. Ignorance is the greatest threat to humanity. And I took that to heart. And so that means to be educated, to be informed, whether it's formally educated or informally educated, education and being well-informed is of the utmost importance. The second story that I wanna share, which is really what sent me um, towards college and really changed my perspective. And I'll try to make a longer story very short. My mother at the age of 42 was single, raising five children in South Central Los Angeles. <clears throat> and she worked part-time as a, what they call, I think they call them paraprofessionals now, but back then they call them teacher's aides. Mm -hmm. And she made an hourly salary. And every summer we would have to go on welfare because she didn't get paid in the summer because she didn't work in the summer. And she would clean homes um, of different people during the summer just to kind of make ends meet. And at the age of 42, she decided that she wanted to go to college. She went to Southwest Community College. Then she transferred after three years of going part-time to Dominguez Hills. And after going to Dominguez Hills for three and a half years, she graduates with her bachelor's degree. And she didn't graduate with a 3.0 or 4.0. She graduated with about a 2.3 GPA because someone told her that a C was passing. And so she just tried to get C's in all of her class because she was working at nighttime. She was going to school at night. She was working in the day. She's raising five children. And something incredible happened when she got her bachelor's degree. She was working in a classroom with a lady by the name of Mrs. Simmons. Mrs. Simmons, the summer that my mother graduated, announced that she was gonna retire. My mom went from being the teacher's aide in Ms. Simmons' class to being the um, emergency credential teacher in that classroom. Same student, same school, same classroom, same curriculum, but she went from being hourly to salary, went from having no medical benefits to having medical benefits, having no sick days to having sick days to not getting paid in the summer, to getting paid in the summer. And her life changed. And the only difference between her life at the begin, at the end of that school year and the beginning of the new school year was she got her degree. It changed her life. It changed our life. She didn't have to go on welfare anymore. And we were able to live in dignity. And I said, hmm, there's something to this thing called education. I literally saw it change my mom's life ultimately changed our life. And you gotta understand, I have three siblings, three brothers, I have four siblings with three brothers. And they would say in my neighborhood that one out of four men would die before they're 18. One out of four men would spend most of their adult life in and out of the uh, judicial criminal system. And so all four of us, all five of us, you can count my sister, have at least a bachelor's degree, uh, at least a, a associate's degree. And most of us have a bachelor's degree and my sister has an advanced degree. We saw the, and all that came after we saw my mom and what happened with her. So you're right, it's in my veins. Boom, boom. I mean, just right there. You know, I had all these questions about who wired you to be this way and what did they say to get you there? I don't have to ask any of that. I bet your mom did not have to say anything to you. She just showed you by doing what could happen. You know, uh, uh, when I was growing up, I was a kid 
And I used to, uh, I, I, one of the people I idolized the most in my life was my grandfather. Mm. And my grandfather was, if he was five feet on a good day, um, he was something. But he had tattooed, he had anchors tattooed on each of his arms. And mm -hmm. uh, he was like Popeye the Sailor Man. And he, he was the custodian at El Camino Community College. Oh. And he used to take me to work with him on the weekends. And he, I, look, I learned a lot. I learned how to fix a sink, how to, how to wire up a, a room and with electrical. But the thing I learned most was what he drilled into me every day is you're going to be at college. You're going to be, I want you to come here. I want you to go to university. I want you to go to college. And so I grew up knowing I would go to school, go to university because my parents and my grandfather who took me there most weekends told me so. You exactly the same experience. Change your life. Unbelievable. Did you always know what you wanted to study? No. Uh, here's the irony of it. Um, so I went to school for one year. And I did terrible. I went to college for a year, and I and after one year of of college uh, exploration, um, I had a GPA. You ready for this? Of zero point eight. <laughs> and so, and so the funny thing is, I went to major in business, and and my um, and my motives were pure, right? I wanted to major in business because I want to earn a lot of money so that my mom could retire early. I can take care of my siblings, right? And it just wasn't, that just wasn't my major. It didn't flow with me. Um, that was one thing too. I wasn't mature enough. I really to handle the, the freedom and to discipline myself, study. And so I went for my third semester to register for school. And the college counselor says to me, she said, you know, you might want to consider a vocation or community college or something of that nature. And I said, no, I like it here. And she's like, you know, you really should look at the vocation, the military. I'm like, no, I like it. And she said, listen, I'm trying to tell you, you don't belong here. <laughs> Your grades stink. You can't keep getting Fs. And so I, I ended up joining the military. And after a, um, a stint in the military, when I finished my um, enlistment, I went back to school. And then I ended up graduating with honors because I was mature enough. I had some life experiences. Um, I had done some self-reflection and assessment. And that's when I decided to major in the social sciences uh, versus in business. And, you know, the rest is history. Uh, but so, I didn't know. So let's talk about that for a minute, because, you know, one of the uh, most amazing populations that we have on our campus are our veterans. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I am so proud that we, we have one of the best veteran resource centers around and we have a, a large veteran population, large women veteran population. They have an incredible graduation rate. And when I talk to those young men and women and some of them not so young men and women, they tell me all the time the same similar story, Ivan, which is they got out of high school and they started. Maybe they went to community college or they went to college and it just wasn't for them. And they went into the military and something happened. They learned discipline. They learned uh, uh, wh what they want to do with their life. They will be able to be reflective. So is that, is that what happened to you? What was it about that military experience, the service that you were providing that, that gave you that perspective? Yeah. yeah. You know, very, very powerful uh, thing that happened. Uh, I, used, I used to tell people that I grew up in poverty, South Central Los Angeles Watts, right? And again, it was poverty. And again, it was a rough neighborhood, violence, crime, drug, you know, the whole stereotypical cliche. Um, and I don't, and I don't, I'm not trying to garner any sympathy, but that's just the reality of what it was. But when I joined the Navy and I went on uh, what they call a Western, a Westpac, where we cruised the Western Orient. And I went to places like the Philippines or to Pakistan, and I saw poverty, like, like poverty um, and I saw suffering that I'd never seen except for at three o'clock in the morning on television, right? And that changed my whole life. Um, I wanted to do something to make a difference. When I went to college the first time, I wanted to make a difference for my family. It was very narrow focused. Um, when I saw the poverty in the various countries, not just one country, but multiple countries that I went to, 
and compared how fortunate even I was coming from the neighborhood I came from, I wanted to make a difference. And I think that made all the difference in the world. When I went to college, I was focused. I had a, I had a mission. I had a vision. Um, I understood who I was and how I was wired. I was a people person. I wasn't about trying to make uh, money. I was about trying to make a difference. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that my wife and I would say when we were early in our career, she had this big corporate job that she made big money. I said, okay, babe, you make the money. I'll save the world. That's what we'll do. Bonnie and Clyde, right? <laughs> make a and so uh, that, that's, that's what happened in the military. It yeah, gave me a chance to mature, but it also gave me a chance to see something that I never would have seen. I, you know, this is a, this is something that uh, our people in our nation don't understand to the same degree. And by the way, it is not a cliche. It is not, uh, uh, you know, for you to say that you grew up in South Central and you grew up in poverty and you grew up in a, in, in a rough way. That's, that's not a cliche. That's fact. And you should, you should, that, that is exactly what it is and own it, be it, that's who you are, but that means something, that means something. But then for you to be able to say that you went to other parts of the world and realized that the world, there's so much of the world that has so much worse than we do. You know, you know, you know this about me. My, my dad was an orphan on the streets of India. He lived mm-hmm. in trees. He, he stole food to survive. And then he stowed away on a freighter to get out of there and, you know, changed his life by, by uh, going to sea. Same idea. This, this nation that we have is the American dream in so many ways. And we forget that. And we forget to focus on that, but it has to have the, 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 that dream has to work for everyone. It has to work for everyone in our country. And um, it's so important to have that perspective. I think that's one of the amazing things about you, Ivan, is that you've got not just a community perspective, but a world perspective. But we're talking about education and, you know, um, uh, you know, I spent 30 years in the corporate world as a, as a corporate lawyer and working for Fortune 50 companies, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I wasn't making a difference in the world. I wasn't providing opportunity to people for people to lift themselves and their families up and, and create community. And, you know, I know you, you do that in your, your position as a faculty member and as a pastor. Um, and so there's a double uh, a connection there. But, for, but also isn't education for you, I feel like it's all about curiosity too. You have such a curious nature, you wanna know. Yeah, yeah, I, I wanna know. I wanna learn more um, and to some degree that's a benefit and it's a curse, right? <laughs> because, you know, a jack of all trades, a master of none, right? I know a little bit about a whole bunch of stuff. And that's great because I'm always curious about things. Um, and I think that when you stop learning, you stop growing. And when you stop growing, you start dying. And I think learning is about living and ignorance and um, refusing to continue to expand your mind is a death sentence, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, the... the uh, the amazing thing about education is that it's multidimensional. You know, if you get that degree, no one can ever take that from you. And it is the greatest equalizer in the world to create a level playing field for you and everybody else, whether that's your BA, your master's, your doctorate, or for you, two masters and a doctorate. I mean, it is, it is a, loving, a level playing field, but it's also about equipping you. It's also about always expanding and making you a better person. You can never stop, you know, talking about a cliche, lifelong learning is, is talked about as a cliche, but it is so true. It is so, so important. How do you, how do you bring together the, the Ivan Pitts, the, the, the Professor Pitts uh, uh, that, that has all this uh, education and ha- all this devotion to education and the Pastor Pitts um, who, who yeah. shepherds a congregation, a community leader and a faith leader, uh, uh, you know, a black leader in, the, uh, or in Orange County, uh, a pastor and a professor. How do you navigate that? How do you bring that all together? Yeah. <clears throat> so one of the things that I, I, I don't do is I don't try to separate them, 
right? I am who I am. So I have core values that I believe in and that I hold firm, right? And regardless of what job I do, whether I am a college professor, whether I'm a pastor uh, in a pulpit or whether I'm a custodian um, in a corporation, that my core values do not change. And I try to live those things out um, each and every day of my life. And so, <clears throat> and so one, of, one of the things that I have a core value, are, my core values are around um, loving and laughing. Um, I believe that each day you should show someone that you love them deeply, that each day is not complete unless I've expressed in a tangible way um, my deep love or affection for someone. And I'll bring it all together in a moment. But at the same time, I am as silly and as uh, fun as anybody. So I also think that you should laugh and make others laugh at least once a day deeply, right? So there should be a deep love connection and a deep laugh collection, um, um, connection each and every single day. So whether I'm in a pulpit or whether I'm in the classroom, I'm educating people about moral um, and um, ethical behavior or about theories of learning and, and teaching and adults and so forth and so on. But it is always gonna be couched in these two core values of loving and laughing. And so you know, I try not to be. So when people find out that I'm a pastor, they're like, oh, you don't seem like a pastor. When they find I'm a professor, they say, you don't seem like a professor um, because you know you, you laugh a lot, you joke a lot, you know, you are quote unquote down to earth, which, which shocks me. What we're supposed to be down to earth. You know, one of the things I love about you, Fram, is that you're down to earth. And so I think that's who we're supposed to be accessible. Uh, we are supposed to give our life and service and show people we love them. And I think that we're supposed to be so um, connected with people that we can make each other laugh. And that's, that's how I bring it all together. I don't try to separate it. I am who I am. What you see in the classroom is what you'll see in the pulpit, what you'll see in my living room and what you'll see in the grocery store. You know, and I got to tell you, my brother, you do it, you do, you, you don't just preach it, you, you practice it. I've never had a conversation with you where I haven't felt loved and where I haven't laughed. And I usually laugh more. It's not once a day. It's once every few minutes, man. And, and that's, and, and, and laughter and joy, they make the world go round. They really do. So, <laughs> excuse me. We're talking about, in some ways, we're talking about what makes good leaders. And what I see in you and what makes you a great leader, not just a good leader, Ivan, but a great leader is you lead with love and, 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 you, and you believe in laughter and joy. Absolutely. But you are authentic. You are authentic. You are. You are. You make yourself vulnerable. You share your um, your mistakes and your and your stumbles. Uh, you're never afraid to tell somebody. Like you just told our whole audience. By the way, uh, our viewership is about four and a half million people. So uh, you just told four and a half million people that you got a zero point eight nine or whatever at San Diego State. But see, you didn't even hesitate to do that. That is who you are, right there, right there. Um, but, but that's what makes you an effective leader is authenticity and vulnerability and leading with love. Absolutely. One, one of, I read an art. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. You know, I was taught and I don't know how um, deliberate it was, but it was, but it was very clear that leaders don't make mistakes. You don't show your weaknesses or your vulnerabilities. <clears throat> I just don't believe that. I read an article and I, it was in Harvard Business Review, I believe. And it was probably about 15 years ago. And the article was called something like, Who Should Be Led By You? And they did a study of 1,500 uh, high-ranking executives in the UK and in America, or in the US. And they discovered there were four characteristics that all these great leaders had. And one was the ability to be vulnerable and, that, and to share a little bit about who you are and about your mistakes. Because there was two things that happened when you did that. One is that it made people now want to cheer for you and be connected with you because they could relate to, you know, the fact that you're not perfect. 
But the second thing um, that doing that did, it, it killed rumors. Because when people don't see your mistakes, they usually make them up. And it's usually worse than what is the reality, right? And so when you share a little bit about your weaknesses, you share a little bit, you know, the appropriate level of your weaknesses, appropriate level of your mistakes, right? When you do that, it humanizes you, it, it connects people with you, but also it has people to begin to cheer for you because they can they can relate to you, right? And then it also keeps people from making up stuff because when they make it up, it's always worse than yeah. the reality. Yeah, what else, the other thing I find about leadership is if you share your mistakes and you share your vulnerability, then you never have to be worried about being surprised by those that you are leading who would otherwise maybe hide or shield their vulnerabilities or their mistakes. And that could be, if you're leading, that could be devastating for your leadership if you don't know what's going on. And so the best way to make sure that you, uh, you're, you're, the people that you're leading um, are authentic with you is to be authentic with them. Yeah, you, 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 you invite people um, to be who you are. If you're not transparent, your people won't be transparent, right? But, but mistakes are the greatest teacher, right? Uh, Rick Warren talks all the time about if someone on his staff has not made a mistake within a certain period of time, he said that means two things. They're hiding something <laughs> or they're not pushing out in faith. They're not stretching and pressing the envelope. And what we need from our people is to be honest about their mistakes so they can correct them and learn from them. But also, if you're not making mistakes, then you're being safe. And you can never grow by being safe, right? You have to stretch out. You have to push the envelope. You have to learn from the errors um, that you make as you're trying to learn and grow. Yeah, you know, Make you, sense? Said, you, you said uh, uh, education, education, education is all about learning. And the way you learn is by making mistakes. If you do the same thing over and over again because it's safe, you will not. You will stop learning, and you will not be that lifelong learner. Absolutely right. I love. And that. I want to. And I want to say. And I, I was very clear about my words. When we stop learning and growing, we start dying. Mm -hmm. There is no middle road in life. Either we are growing, or we are disintegrating. We are developing or we are dying. It's one of the, there's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. Either we're getting stronger, better, faster each day, or we're, we're declining each and every day. One yeah, or the absolutely, other. Absolutely right. You know, you can, uh, for people of faith, you can say you have to continually be on your, your journey with God and, and, and refining and, and, uh, and, and, and finding your path that way for people who are maybe a bit more agnostic. You, you say the world is going to move forward. It's, it's always, the world is always turning. Time is always moving forward. And if you try to stand still, you will begin to fall back and you will begin to wither and die. Exactly. Right. So we have to yeah. be on the move. We got to learn. I love it. Gotta I, learn. Love it. I want to go back to something you said earlier. Um, around, you know, this country and that even in our worst communities, um, you know, Ronald Reagan talked about being this light on a hill, right? Um, and I think that's what we are called to be as leaders. We are to be light in the midst of darkness, wisdom in the midst of confusion, uh, calm in the midst of a storm, uh, and if you want to call it hope, let's just call it hope, right? And I think education uh, gives us the ability to expand our minds so that we can have hope, that we can see problems from a perspective of optimism versus something that is pessimistic. I want, I want to be an example. And part of being an example is showing people how glorious you are and also showing people your garbage. Yeah. <laughs> do you, Ivan, do you find that uh, that helps students who are possibly facing imposter syndrome? And, um, you know, because that's something we see a lot on our campus and everywhere in the world, really. And it seems like you're skirting around that 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 issue and how it helps people get by it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that I say all the time in my classes is that grace abounds. Right. And that 
you all are highly competitive, you're highly critical, um, and you're highly stressed. And when you have that combination, you have to give yourself and others some grace. And part of giving yourself and others grace is recognizing that we all have warts um, <laughs> and that we have to love our warts and we can't control where the warts grow. Uh, we would love for our warts to grow in places that no one sees, but sometimes they go smack in the middle of our face. And so if you can love your warts, love yourself in spite of your warts, right? Um, I think that you don't have to pretend to be something you're not. Um, it's, it takes so much energy and so much effort to just be you. You have to double or triple that to be something that you're not, right? One of the things I always talk about is that when you look in the mirror, um, do you love the fullness of who you see, right? Do you love yourself before you wake up and make yourself up? Or do you just love yourself after you get all um, you know, spruced up, right? Do you love yourself in your weakness as much as you love yourself in your strengths? And if you can't love yourself holistically, how, do, how can others love you as well, right? If you can't laugh at yourself, how can you laugh at others, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. This imposter syndrome is something that I think is is um, pervasive, especially in places like Southern California, right? Um, I, I call Southern California the place of almost, right? You know, people who I was almost, you know, in the NBA. I was almost going to be in a movie with Meryl Street. I was almost, you know, almost in a which we're so enamored with the vanities of life. And really for me, and I don't wanna sound like some mystic, but for me, life is just about who you love, um, who you laugh with, who you've connected with, and have you made a difference? Um, is, is the world better because you were there for a moment? Is the world better because you hugged someone, because you loved someone, because you made someone laugh, because you encouraged someone, because you imparted wisdom which sparked the curiosity of lifelong learning. Life is never gonna be defined by how much money you earn unless you take that money and you make a difference with it. It's never gonna be defined by material possessions in my opinion. And this is well before I was pastoring. This is what I know that makes a difference, right? Um, is, is that's we're here to serve uh, and not to be served. So, I don't, you know, we're, we're talking about authenticity and yeah. I don't think it would be authentic uh, for us to have this podcast conversation if we didn't talk about race, racism in America today. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know that in some ways that's what brought us together because I sought your counsel. I, I sought your friendship. I sought your, I sought your love and your, and your mentorship when uh, we had some issues on our campus. Um, at your age, because you're 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 older than dirt, I know that. But at your absolutely, age, <laughs> with your experience living across the nation in all these different places, attending college not only in in California but in the South and in the in the Northeast, um, working and thriving across the country, you've seen a lot of our country and and over a a, a decent span of time. So. What for you as a black man in America, what has changed over the course of your life and, and what hasn't? Yeah, yeah. So I want to start by saying that when you and I met uh, under the circumstances in which we met, and then I'll answer your question. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so old, I might forget my point, so I need to say it now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that you sought my counsel and I didn't know you, you didn't know me. But one of the things that, that broke my heart is that after spending just a little bit of time with you, I saw your heart. And what broke my heart is that people made judgments about you and your intentions, and they didn't know you. And it didn't take long for me, who knows people who have traveled the world and have been in all kinds of environments, and I can smell a, a pig a mile away, and you didn't stink. And so I just was appreciative of your heart. And one of the things that I pray for our school, Cal State University at Fullerton, our school, I pray that people will see your heart. And I pray 
that the very essence of who you are will have an impact, will have an impact on that school. So that's what I hope. With that being said, I will answer your question about what has changed, in, in my opinion, in America uh, for being a black man. Unfortunately, not as much as I thought. I thought that uh, the election of Barack Obama, um, I thought the appointment of, of people like Colin Powell and um, um, I can't even think of the defense secretary, it was at Stanford, the woman. Why can't I think Rice. of him? Kind of, thank you, uh, Connelly mm-hmm. Rice. I thought those kinds of things, and I want to be balanced on the, on the Republican side and on the Democratic side. I thought that we had made strides and I thought that our country uh, was really moving away from the ugly history of yesterday. And, and what I've seen in the last, um, not four years, but in the last 12 years with the election of Barack Obama, I think is when that which was dormant has become, became alive. And then four years ago, I thought it, it became empowered, <clears throat> this ugliness. And so uh, that's what I've seen. I have hopes and had hopes that those things were in the past that my children would only read about racism and not experience it, but they are now experiencing it and will continue to experience it until we, and I'll let you ask me more specific questions because I won't, I won't run from any question you ask me, until we, until my white uh, brothers uh, that are conservative, that are evangelical, um, take up the mantle of equality across the board. This is not a black um, Latinx issue. This is an issue where all hands must be on deck. All of us must be incensed by inequality and racism. And all of us must be equally passionate about ending the atrocities that have gone on for more than 400 years in this country. That's my position. Yeah. You know, uh, I see it as an eruption. You know, there was a there was a period of time where racism wasn't dormant. Racism racism was not uh, ab- ab- abating. Racism was hiding. Racism was waiting. Racism was uh, subterranean. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is an eruption. We've seen it come to the surface. And the the good news, if there is good news, is that. That's how you uh, diagnose a disease is, is through recognizing it when it erupts in your body, on your surface, uh, on the surface of your skin, and you can see it and you can call it and you can name it. And that's the bad news is that's what we've got. And the good news is now we got, at least we have to, it's very hard if you, you, you can't close your eyes and put your head in the sand and, igno- and, and ignore it. You, the ostrich defense no longer works. It is not going to work to ignore this. We have to face it. And you are so right that this isn't a Black problem. This isn't a Latinx problem. This isn't an Asian problem. And it's not just a problem for all of us. This is a, this is a, this is a privilege problem. This is a white America problem. Yeah. We have to acknowledge it before we can take action. And it manifests itself in so many different ways. And we live in the middle of Orange County, which I never thought I would say in my life. <laughs> I mean, I'm an L.A. boy. I grew up in L.A. and I never thought I had never come to be. And I love Orange County. I love I love being a Fullertonian. I love being in Orange County. There's so much good, good, good in this community. <clears throat> but if there's a place where change needs to come, it, it is here. You know, and I've said uh, many times, this is my 1964. You know, when you and I were too little, too young, uh, when the Civil Rights Act of 64 was passed or the the Voting Rights Act of 65 was passed, or, you know, we were, uh, you know, I was in second grade when MLK was uh, doing his thing, when RFK was assassinated. You know, this is our time. This is our time to be accountable. And this summer, if you want to talk about eruption, this past summer with George Floyd was the ultimate eruption point. This is a generational opportunity for change. Uh, so what do we do? I mean, how do how do we how do we do this? Um, standing next to each other. How do we do this? How can I do this? How can we do this? Yeah, yeah. So so I, I think there's several things that we have to do 
and I think that's with anything, any issue, any problem, you first must admit that there is a problem. I think that we haven't even gotten past that point with many people. Just admit that there's a problem. You can admit you don't understand it. You can admit you're afraid of it. You can admit that you don't even want it to go away, but just admit <laughs> that it's there, yeah. right? And, and then once you admit, once we admit that it's there, then we have to kind of look inward in my own mind and say, what can I do as an individual? And then what can I do with my platform? Ah, let me give it to you one more time. What can Ivan do as Ivan Pitts? What can I do, right, in my little circle? But also, what can I do as Professor Pitts? And what can I do as Pastor Pitts? And what can I do as a member of Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, right? What can I do in the circles that I run in? And what, how can I use my platform to make a difference? And I'm going to give you something that I talked about this morning uh, with a group of evangelical white pastors um, in Orange County. There's, there's three things that I said we should do. One, we should start small groups and go through uh, this book called Oneness Embraced by Tony Evans. Oneness is Embraced talks about um, some of the issues that we're facing today and really begin to look at white privilege, look at race in the Bible, look at how it has been pervasive here in this country. And it's a tough it's a tough read because it's making us look inside. And I said, pastors, we need to do this. It needs to be a multi-ethnic coalition of pastors who are reading this book and doing the work, wrestling with it. Now, let me, let me tell you something. I also think that people don't like this, but I just think it needs to happen. And in that environment, we need to be able to be completely and totally transparent. Let me tell you what I mean. My white brothers and sisters should be able to say, ask questions like, why do black lives matter? Why can't all lives matter? They should be able to ask those questions and get honest answers because if you can't ask an honest question, you know, you won't be able to wrestle with the gravity of the situation. You should be able to ask, why is the N-word offensive for me to use it, but not for you to use it? You should be able to ask, why can't you get over this racism? It was 300 years ago, 400 years ago, 200 years ago, whatever. Those are the tough questions that my white brothers and sisters need to be able to ask someone and not get beat up for asking because they honestly want to understand. But at the same time, we should be able to ask questions like, how in God's name can you be a Christian and vote for Trump, right? <laughs> you know, those kind of questions because that's what we want to know. How can you not understand that racism exists? We should be able to ask tough questions not for the sake of fighting, but the sake of getting understanding. So we should go through this process of really having dialogue that we can grow together and come to understanding together. And then from that, we should encourage our congregation to have similar dialogues intercongregationally. And at the end of that time, we should come together and talk about what did we learn? What did we experience? And really kind of get the, get the highlights and the lowlights of this journey we should do some project in the community together, working together. And then we should also <clears throat> spend some time going and visiting. We should go on a retreat. We should go on a multi-ethnic retreat and spend some time um, doing things. We work as a team, um, building trust and building kinship. Because when you spend that much time with someone, you get to know them. And some of the stereotypes, some of the uh, barriers, some of the things that we thought, some of the ignorance begins to um, peel away and we begin to see each other authentically as human beings, not just as a black man or a white woman, but as someone who is wonderfully and uniquely made. And then I think lastly, not only do you do a project, now you go through this process of conversation together and learning together, now we do projects together, now we do retreats together to build team and camaraderie. But then I think it's important that maybe this group goes on a trip to the lynching museum in Alabama or to the Smithsonian African-American Museum of History in DC and really get a deeper appreciation. And, we, and, and it's a slow process, but you can't spend that much time working that hard with each other and not have some sense of connection, right? Does that make sense? It does, you know, uh, 
I, I feel, as I said, like this is um, a, a generational opportunity. It is a watershed moment. And I think one of the things, one of the concepts that has uh, helped with that is being unabashedly an anti-racist. Yep. The idea, you know, uh, in, 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 in my parents' generation, and look, I, you know, I, I come from a mixed marriage. My dad, as I said, is, was a very brown guy from India, and my mom was a Dust Bowl Swede from Iowa, you know. Um, but in, in their generation, it was talked about quietly, and it was talked about not discriminating, about avoiding discrimination. And I think the, the, the lexicon and the, and, the, and the parlance and the importance has changed. You can't argue that someone should be a racist. Be an affirmative anti-racist. I think this concept of standing up and being unabashedly an anti-racist. And if you are an anti-racist, then what you do is you confront systemic racism. You recognize it, you root it out, you confront it, and you confront privilege privilege that I have. And you recognize that holding that privilege is holding something else from others, but giving up that privilege doesn't mean you lose anything. But that's doesn't the point. Mean you lose anything. And so, and then you can move from this acknowledgement, this, this admitting of an issue, this acknowledgement of the issue to action. Because if you, if you recognize systemic racism and privilege and are an unabashedly anti-racist, then you can find action beyond that acknowledgement. Yeah, but I, I think that, so I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I'm not going to refute anything you say, but I will say that that's the fear. The fear is that you're going to lose something, right? right? And if you want to get you know, biblical, you know, the little boy with the feeding of the 5,000, right? He was never afraid that he was going to lose his dinner by giving the fish and the loaves to Jesus, right? And everybody was able to eat. And I think that that is something that the universe, that is something um, that is a universal truth. When you sacrifice for the benefit of others, you will never, ever go without. It is so and, right. And this is about, this is about ignorance again, right? <clears throat> because um, I, I told a story just a few weeks ago in Jerusalem, there are two seas. One is called the Dead Sea and one is called the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is um, a living sea. It has water flowing in and has water uh, from the Jordan flowing in and water flowing out. And in that Sea of Galilee, there is all kinds of uh, fish and, and, and livestock that are living in the water and, and, and plants are growing. But in the Dead Sea, there's nothing living, there's nothing growing. It only receives water. It has no place for water to pour out. And what it's saying is that um, if you only receive and don't pour out, you're not living, you're dying. And so when we think that we're going to lose something by helping those who have been abused, those who have been oppressed, those who have been systematic, uh, systematically um, um, classified as not even second-class citizens, but as less than human, then we are dying. I think the other thing is that Henry David Thoreau, so now I get on the academic side, that was the, that was the biblical side, right? The academic side is Henry David Thoreau says that uh, those who are oppressive would never voluntarily stop oppressing even when they realize that their actions are hurting someone else. I'm paraphrasing. It says that those who are being oppressed must demand it and command it from those who are oppressive. And that, that those who recognize that they're living in privilege, they're never gonna give that up voluntarily. And so what is the answer? The answer is until they make it personal. Let me give you one quick example. I know a man who, um, whose daughter married a black man. He was a white guy who thought it mattered, but, and um, he didn't understand racism until he had grandchildren mm -hmm. that looked black. And the places that he, was, he wanted to take his, his black grandchildren 
and explore and he got treated differently because of that. And they were not, they didn't have access to certain things because of that. And so what I wanna say to you is that it became personal for him. And he was able to make some significant changes because he saw it with his own eyes. It became personal. He was able to utilize his platform. And he, he like you, Fran, was a very powerful lawyer and made a big difference with his firm and other places because it became personal. Until we make it personal, that's why I think you have to rub elbows with people who have lived in oppressive situations, those who have suffered from racism. You have to build bonds and relationships because it becomes personal. And when it becomes personal, it's easy to give of yourself to someone who you have connected with. Yeah, you know, you, you, we, we talk about the issue of privilege and the issue of um, a fear of losing something. If you acknowledge and you share that privilege, you give up that privilege and you share whatever the, whatever the rights and uh, authorities that come with that with others, you know, uh, and the fear of losing that. It, it is an irrational fear. It is an irrational fear because this is not a finite pie. This is not, if I give you some of my pie, I have less. This is not, if we have to recut the pie, my piece will be smaller. This is the beauty of humanity. Yeah. Which is, you know, for people of faith like me and like you, it is, it is, the, it is the beauty of God, which is no matter how much love you give away, your heart fills up right behind it. And usually you've exercised the muscle so you end up having more love in your heart than you started with. This is not a zero-sum game. Actually giving away equality and equity, actually giving away love and joy and uh, any privilege that you have actually makes you better. It actually fills your heart more. It actually creates a, a, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a humanity that will improve you, rise all, raise all boats. It is the way God intended it to be made. And if you don't want to take it from a, a, a religious standpoint, it is still absolutely true. I've never heard of anybody that's given away love, given away joy, given away access, given away privilege, given away opportunity, and had less as a result. They always have more. They always have more. You know, you you preached a sermon. It's been my favorite sermon ever since you preached it. I've told you this before. And it's your, I'm not okay if you're not okay sermon. It, it, it boils it down to the essentials. Ivan, just in a nutshell, tell our listeners what that's about. Yeah, that, that's about the, the fact that there is this African concept called Mbutu, which simply means I'm not okay unless you're okay. And I can never be okay until you're okay. And it's this concept of how can I ever, ever be satisfied and happy and whole when my brother, Fran, my brother, Matt, my brother, our sister is not okay. And it's this idea of individual um, connectivity to one another, right? This, um, what does Martin Luther King say? We're all woven into this um, inextricable fabric of mutuality, right? That I'm not okay unless you're okay. And that's in a nutshell. And I got that from one of my friends when I was in graduate school, who's from Africa. And he would always say to me when I would say, what's up, man? He would say, uh, I'm okay if you're okay. And I thought that was the silliest response. I'm like, man, you can't can't say that you got to say what's up back he's like no 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 where I'm from I can't say that I'm okay if you're not okay and if you're okay then I'm okay and I've adopted that right it's hard my wife will tell you that we've we've taken in so many people in our home uh, that were homeless or that were down and out and it's like I can't be okay unless you're okay my wife used to say every time you come home you got someone new with you don't don't bring anyone new right but there is this sense of how can I be okay if you're okay and you're my brother. We have to see each other as family. We have to see each other as, as um, mutually connected. Well, all you're and, saying and, is that we have to see the truth. 
my brother. That's all truth. you're saying. Because we are family and we are connected. We have to re- we have to see what is real, what is true. Yeah, see what is real. Last thing I'll say, you, you talk about privilege. We 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 hold on to privilege to race to power and money. But what about the privilege of pouring into people's lives and now you have the privilege of speaking into their life? A privilege of being connected, the privilege of loving and being loved, the privilege of connecting and being connected to. That is a greater privilege for me. Money cannot purchase all the privilege that I have. So, you know, that leads me, you know, we're, 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 we're coming to the end here, but I got a couple of questions. Maybe we call it the lightning round where you can answer these questions, but they lead sure. me to the per- perfect. So Ivan Pitts, Reverend Pitts, Professor Pitts, what makes your heart sing? What makes my heart sing? Oh, acts of kindness. Okay. If you, if you, if you have a mission statement, What's your personal mission statement? What's the Ivan Pitts mission statement? Yeah, to love deeply and laugh often. Mm-hmm. That's my personal right. thing. And, and tell me the three people, whether you knew them or not, who are, who are the greatest influences in your life? Yeah, Martin Luther King is one. Two would be Reverend um, William Gillespie, and then three, and not necessarily in this order, my mother. Um, so we know about mom and we know about MLK. Tell us about Reverend Gillespie. Reverend Gillespie was a pastor in St. Louis who was as humble as they came. He's the one who took me under uh, his wing and showed me how to not just lead a church, but how to love people and how to love a community. His church was by no means a mega church, but he had a mega ministry. And he was one of the most well-respected pastors in the entire city of St. Louis. And just the scope of his his ministry was amazing. And how he cared for me and how he just just cared for me and others. And I just thought um, he's the single uh, largest impact um, in my ministry and really in how I think about community activism. I love it, I love it. All right, distilling all this down in kind of a, a fun and maybe less a little superficial way is one of the things that I love best about you. One of the things that you do the best is laugh and trash talk. And, and uh, so tell me how <laughs> laughter and trash talk is a vehicle for joy and assembling a community, because that's you, 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 you use that better than any man I've ever met. Laughter and trash talk to build joy and community. Yeah, it. So, so laughter keeps you. Um, it, it removes barriers and boundaries, right? It, it makes you feel comfortable, right? But it also makes you humble. And let me give you a real quick example. Uh, I was going to be installed as the next pastor of the New Hope Baptist Church in Danbury, Connecticut, which is the largest African-American church in that area. And it was uh, pretty prestigious for that community. And on the day that I was going to be installed, I have my brothers who we grew up, you know, seven to eight of us in a um, 800 square foot house, two bedrooms, one bath. We all slept in the same room in bunk beds. And my two younger brothers slept in the same bed for years, and when my brother got married, he says that um, he felt like he was cheating on his brother because he had never slept with another person before his brother, right? And so this is the context, right? So we're on the steps, we get ready to march in. We got the mayor, we got the US congressman there and senators there, and we're getting to walk in and this lady walks up to my two brothers and say, um, you must be proud of your brother. He's gonna be the next pastor of this prestigious church. And my brother said, are you kidding me? He peed in the bed when he was 12. We're not impressed. <laughs> and so that made everybody laugh. And it just, it just kind of the, the intensity of the moment. And so I've always been around people who don't take position too seriously. What they, what they take serious is connecting with people. And humor is one of the ways we connect with people. Well, 
I'm, I'm thanking God right now that I got a connection with you, that we connect with each other. It is, it is a, a joy in my life to, to be your friend, to be, uh, uh, be, be your brother and, uh, and have this conversation. And the great part for me is that all the conversations that came before it, I can see all the conversations that are going to come later. Yeah. More joy and trash talk for sure. Yeah. More joy and trash talk for absolutely sure. And I thank you so much for, I want to give a shout out to my wife who, um, babe, you would have been number four on that list for people who are uh, lifelong influential uh, people. But you know, you're up there with Martin Luther King, my mom and Reverend Gillespie, you know, that's- Way to recover, way to recover, (laughs) way to recover, way to recover. Thank you for listening to Fram and Friends, a collaboration between Titan Radio and Cal State Fullerton. For more episodes like the one you just heard, visit titanradio.org.